Would you pray with me? Lord, we pray that you would move as we meditate on your word, that you would encourage and strengthen your people to become who you have made us to be. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I'm sure you agree with me. This has been an intense few weeks. It's been tough. A lot of pressure, increasing stress. I sure have been feeling it. Earlier this week, I was riding my stationary bike in my house, and I made the mistake. I usually like to watch movies, and I ended up watching the 2011 movie Contagion. And, uh, well, I was kind of interested. I'd never seen it before, and, and if you want to increase fear, go ahead and watch that movie. And it also reminded me of another favorite movie, the 2007 movie by Will Smith, I Am Legend. So it, it can feel like we're in the movies right now where we're going to, I don't know, turn into zombies or something. Wow. But God's people do not need to be afraid. What's the worst thing that can happen? The worst thing that can happen is that we die. And the scripture says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so if we depart these bodies in whatever way, we are actually going to be in a better place. And knowing that can give us faith, give us strength, and give us joy. It can give us a whole lot of courage not to be afraid at all. It says in 2 Timothy 1.7, for God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of self-control. And so we can go out and we can be praying for our neighbors, thinking about them, not isolating ourselves so that we're not having communication with others. In fact, I'm really excited about this time. I don't wish it on any of us, but there's an opportunity. What is the opportunity? The facade of existential security is being shown to be what it is. We're not secure. The foundations are being shaken. And it's good because fi finances, health, relationships, work, life as it goes about in the normal, it's all been disrupted. And we're beginning to see what life really is anyway, because none of it is able to make us secure. And the scriptures, of course, say that there's only one thing that can make us secure. It's a relationship with Jesus Christ. So here's the, here's the chance, my friends, because those who do not have a relationship with Jesus, they are afraid, and they should be. They have a reason to experience this crisis and be totally shaken because the very earth itself feels like it's shaking. But when you're connected to the vine in Jesus Christ, you have strength, you have love, and you have hope that even if we were to, God forbid, fall sick and die, in faith, we'll be with Jesus and you will be in a better place. And knowing that ultimate reality is something that could give us all and should give us all power. God's people have 
been very familiar with stress and pressure and threat. In fact, the, the text in Mark chapter 11, in fact, the, the whole background of the Gospel of Mark, it's important to know, is that there was pressure and stress and threat to God's people. And we see this in two time points. The first time point is the actual story of Jesus, as the Gospel of Mark is telling us. It's Jesus within Palestine, where God's people are under threat through Roman occupation. And you can imagine God's people, the Jews, had experienced occupation after occupation through the Persians and then the Greeks, and now in the, in the Gospel account under the Romans. They were dehumanized. They were mistreated. It was a very difficult time to be living in that day, in that place. They were under intense pressure, stress, and threat. There's a second time point that's implicit to the Gospel of Mark. Do you know what it is? It's the first recipients who heard the Gospel of Mark, which was written probably in the early 68 AD, coming out of Rome, written by Mark, a, dis a disciple, a follower of Jesus, and a companion of the Apostle Peter. They too were under incredible stress and threat. The Romans were mistreating the Christians. In fact, in 64 AD, we know how the fire in Rome was blamed on the Christians, and the Christians were being persecuted severely. And the story of the Gospel of Mark, the very first Christian listeners to this, to this Gospel, were under threat. And here we are now. Do you feel pressure and stress and threat from COVID-19? So maybe there's something here in the Gospel of Mark, and particularly in Mark chapter 11, that is just for us. And I want to organize my thoughts with three points, as normal. Jesus' cleansing of the temple shows us how to be God's people when under pressure and stress and threat. Well, how so? What do God's people do when under this stress? Well, let me lay out three. Are you writing down, whether at home or right here? Three points. What do we do when we are under pressure and stress and threat? The first is this. We are to bear spiritual fruit. We are to bear spiritual fruit. It says in verse 12, on the following day when they came from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to see if he could find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Now the fig tree is a prophetic sign for the temple. In fact, this is a typical structure that Mark lays out. And it comes in a package, we've been calling it the Markin sandwich, as some call it, which he talks about the fig tree, then the temple, then the fig tree again. It's this uh, demonstration of this package in which the fig tree is a prophetic sign of the temple. And so Jesus sees the fig tree from afar. And I imagine, I kind of wonder whether Jesus really loved figs. 
perhaps he grew up on them and loved sweet figs. And there he saw that fig tree, and he was hungry, it says. Perhaps he had been fasting, or perhaps he hadn't eaten in several days. So there he goes to the tree in full green leaf, and he comes looking for fruit. And it says in verse 13, there was no fruit. It was full of leaves, which is to say, prophetically, figuratively, symbolically, there was a lot of action, but there was no spiritual fruit. And then it says in verse 13, it was not the season for figs. Now, of course, I immediately think, well, why would Jesus expect figs if it was not the season for figs? And how is it fair that he would curse the fig tree if it's not the right season? And I think, at least when it comes to the tree, that we wouldn't expect fruit when it's not in season. That's not fair. That's a false expectation. But in the prophetic sign in which the fig tree is now representing the temple, Jesus always expects fruit from God's people. In other words, there's never a season in which we should not have fruit. And Apostle Paul, he says, preach the word in season and out of season. There's no season in which we are not to be going to the word, meditating on the word, preaching the word, and expecting fruit out of the word. And in fact, the, the vision of the, the tree of life in Revelation 20, 22, verse 1 and 2, there's this picture of the tree. And the tree, it says in verse 2, the tree of life has 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. In other words, the temple tree, the tree connected to symbolically to God's people, always bears fruit every month. There's never a season in which in God's vision for his people that we would not bear good fruit. You say, well, that's not possible. Especially as I'm feeling all this pressure and stress. What do we want to do? We want to hide. We want to escape. We want to be by ourselves or we want to stay away or we, we're losing focus. But Jesus says in John 15, 16, another organic image you did not choose me, he says to us, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It's fruit that abides. And so the expectation that God has for his temple is that it is a, always bearing fruit. It's always in season. Because if you're connected to Jesus, you always have the power and the energy to bear good fruit. And so, brothers and sisters, we need to turn to the Lord. You say, I feel weak. I feel scared. I don't know what to do. Well, this is the time in which we, we turn back to the Lord. Because God provides exactly what we need at this time. Exactly what we need. The promise of Isaiah in Isaiah 43 goes like this. He says, fear not to his people, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name and you are mine. And when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. And when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. It's an amazing promise. A promise of within stress and pressure that life brings that we don't have to be afraid because God will not abandon us. So brothers and sisters, turn to the Lord. This is the time to turn to the Lord, turn to the vine, and you can expect during this time of so much pressure and stress to bear fruit. And it is exactly a time for harvest because as God is shaking the earth, as he's shaking the culture, he's doing it for a reason. He's doing it so that we will be the church, that we would step up into this season and we should expect, not because of us, but because of him, to bear good fruit. So what do, what do God's people do during times of pressure and stress and threat? One, we bear fruit. Two, we see in this text, is that we are to focus on the gospel mission. We are to focus on the gospel mission. The Jews had been dehumanized in, there in the first century in which Jesus had come. They had experienced terrible hardship under Roman occupation. And for understandable reasons, how did they feel? They became angry. They were bitter. They were frustrated. And you can think about the Christians as well, who were being persecuted for no good reason. They were just being blamed and scapegoated by the Romans. They too could have turned inward. That would be the great temptation, to turn inward. Look at verse 15 with me. It says, And they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple, and Jesus began to drive out those who sold and those who bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons, and he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. And he was teaching them, and he was saying to them, Is it not written, My house shall be called a prayer for all nations? but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, the only way to really understand what Jesus is doing is to understand why God gave the temple. What is the temple for? Why did he give this gift to the people of Israel? The temple, of course, literally could not hold God. And throughout the scriptures, it's acknowledged that the physical place of the temple, which stood on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, could not literally hold God. At, ver at the very best, the very corner of his robe could be held within the Holy of Holies. Because God is in all the earth and throughout all the universe. They understood that. That it was only symbolic, the temple was, of where God would dwell in the midst of his people. In a re reoccurring refrain, refrain in the Old Testament, that I will be their God and they will be my people. And you see, the temple was this place where heaven and earth connected and where there would be this deep connection between God's people and with God's spirit himself. And there at the temple was the offerings of sacrifice, which brought reconciliation and forgiveness between God and his people 
and between people and people. It was there that they could come and, and pray to the Lord especially and expect to have their prayers answered. In fact, at the very first temple, which is the Temple of Solomon, which had been built uh, many hundreds of years before Jesus, at the founding of that temple of Solomon, Solomon prayed this uh, over the blessing in the hearing of all the people. It's very interesting. He says, this is in 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 41. At the dedication of the temple, he says, when a foreigner comes and prays toward this house, he asks the Lord to do according to all for which the foreigner calls to you, Lord, in order that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you. So way back in 1 Kings chapter 8, at the first temple, there was an understanding that the temple itself was not just for the people of Israel. It was actually for all peoples. Anyone who would want to come to the Lord and meet him and to pray to King Yahweh was welcome to come and to pray. And it was the hope of Solomon at the dedication of that first temple that God would answer prayers so that the people would know that God is God and that the whole earth, not just Israel, would worship him. It's a wonderful image of what the purpose of the temple was. And now you, once you understand the purpose of the temple, connecting not only Israel, but all, of, but all people, as an invitation to come and to pray, now you can begin to understand why Jesus comes with such judgment upon the temple. What was Jesus doing? Why did he come and cleanse the temple? And when you read the text, it's not immediately clear exactly what he's doing and why. But I think there are four clues that we can look here, which help us understand the motivations of why Jesus cleansed the temple, and it points us to what we are to be as God's temple. Here's clue number one. It's that Jesus turned over the, the tables of the money changers. He turned over the tables where the pigeons were being held because at that time, the Jews had made the temple courts a place of commerce. It was like a place of religious shopping in which people would come not to receive prayer, which was exactly what the space was supposed to be dedicated for, but it had taken on these other reasons. And the text doesn't say this, but I'm suspicious that, it might, that this is what might have been going on, is that the Jews were... were upset and angry with the Gentiles. They didn't forbid the Gentiles from coming at all. But within the Gentile court during the time of Herod's temple, which, which we're reading here in the gospel, they had set up a court for the Gentiles in which the Gentiles could come. And the Gentiles could come and pray there. And it was in that space that they had set up a place of commerce. So much had been taken away from the Jewish people. So much had been stolen by the Romans. They were bitter. They were angry. Maybe this was a little bit of a chance for them to take a little bit back. You want to worship our God? Okay, you can worship our God. But in the meantime, we're going to take a little bit back that has been taken from us. The second clue is that Jesus quotes Isaiah 56, verse 7. This is in, in verse 17. It is, is it not written? 
And after that, he quotes from two different Bible verses, one from Isaiah and the second from Jeremiah. Is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? That's from Isaiah 56, 7. And it's interesting to go back to Isaiah 56 and to read verse 7 within its context. Again, it's being repeated. As Solomon had set up the temple to be a place for all nations to come and to pray, that's the vision from I in Isaiah. But that's not what happened in the first century when Herod had reconstructed the old temple. It started in 20 BC when the temple had been rebuilt. And the rebuilding is very interesting. And it's interesting to look at pictures because the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place remained about the same size. It was increased in size a little bit. Everything had been rebuilt with new stones and, and so on. But the courts around the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place was greatly increased so that the, 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 the entire temple complex was the size of almost 20 football fields. And it was built so that at the very inner court, that's where, or, or the inner temple, the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place, that's where God dwelt and only the priest and only the high priest could go into the, the holy place only once a year on Yom, Yom Kippur. And as you move away from the temple, the images is that things become increasingly impure. And so there were four courts. Right outside the temple, in Herod's temple, was the court of the priests. Only the priests could go there within, these, within that inner court closest to the holy place. Then just outside of the court of the priests was the court of Israel. This is where only men and only Jewish men were allowed to go. And then the third court outside of that was called the court of the women. And there it was only Jewish women who were pure who could enter into that court. And then in the outer court, the biggest court and the court where it's likely that Jesus is actually demonstrating and turning over the tables was the court of the Gentiles. That's where Gentiles, if they wanted to come, they could come and worship God. Now, it's important to know that the court of the Gentiles, the court of the women, the, the court of the priests, that was all made up. None of that is in the Old Testament. It was all made up. Made up in the first century. In Solomon's temple, anyone could come up to the temple complex. There were no gates. There were no barriers. Everyone was welcome, including Gentiles. But you see, the Jews had become bitter. They had become angry. They were frustrated with their occupiers. And so they began to create these gates, these courts. Out within the, the, the court of the Gentiles, there was this inscription in which it read, no stranger is to enter within the balustrade round the table, the temple and enclosure. It says to the Gentiles, whoever is caught will be himself responsible for his ensuing death. And the Romans gave the Jews the legal right to kill anyone who crossed over these particular boundaries. And so Gentiles, who God had wanted to come to the temple to pray, the Gentiles were barred far away from the temple out of Israel's anger and frustration, out of its stress, out of its pressure, out of the threat that they had been experiencing. They were embittered 
And so they didn't want the Gentiles to come close. And they were kept far away, all against what God had intended. And then they had the nerve to not only keep the Gentiles away, but then they used it as a place of commerce in order to give a little bit of, of, a, of a push against their gent- Gentile neighbors. Well, that's the second clue. The third clue is the quote from Jeremiah 7.11. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers? And it's like, you'd go, I encourage you to go and read Jeremiah 7. It's a very, again, it's all about the temple and what had, the God's people had done then during the time of uh, Jeremiah. A den of robbers. Who is being robbed? And what are they being robbed of? Who is being robbed? And what are they being robbed of? Well, you go back to Jeremiah 7 and you begin to get a realization of what's happening. The first person being robbed is God. God's being robbed. Robbed of worship. In Jeremiah, it's the people who are full of idols. They're worshiping other things. Rather than giving God pure worship that he deserves, well, it's mixed. It's syncretistic. It's worship of God, but worship of other things as well. And it's God who's being robbed first. But then as you look in Jeremiah 7, it's also, it's the poor who are being robbed. As it talks about in, in, in that text, it's the orphans and it's the widows who are being neglected by God's people. And so they're worshiping God, but it's feign worship. Because if you worship God with your lips, but you don't take care of the ones around you, then it's not real worship. It demonstrates where your heart is. And also in Jeremiah 7, it's the sojourners. That is the foreigners. And so who else is being robbed? The Gentiles are being robbed. The temple was a place that God had made to be a mission mechanism in order to engage all the nations. But the sojourners, that is the foreigners, that is the Gentiles, who wanted at least some to come and to pray, were being blocked. And it's a warning to us. It's a warning that we do not want to become a kind of people under stress, under pressure, to block people from worshiping the Lord, from coming and to engage the new temple of God and having their prayers brought to Jesus and being heard. Well, there's a fourth clue, and it's in Mark 11, verse 14, where it says, back to the fig tree. After Jesus had spoken this word of curse against the fig tree, in verse 14 it says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. So when Jesus goes into that temple, he's not just trying to cleanse it or restore it to bring it back to right order. He's actually ending the temple within that era. The temple which had then been this place of geographical location in which you had to go. But now, as we learn throughout the New Testament, Jesus is the new temple. Jesus himself, he says in John chapter 2, verse 19, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. 
Because you see, the, that geographical temple in Jerusalem was only a shadow of a greater temple coming. The shadow in which you could meet God himself in the person of Jesus. That transformed worship in which we now are not worshiping on a mount, but we worship Jesus in spirit and in truth. And this is really good news. It's really good news. It means that a church scattered, a people of God who are dispersed and all over the place, a church that can't even meet on Sunday, and think about the Christians in Rome under the persecution of the Romans. They had to tiptoe around in the shadows lest they get their neck slit or been put on a cross and torched, literally. This was great news. They don't need to be in a certain place. They can meet absolutely anywhere. And as we heard at the beginning, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. Christians can gather in any place, and in Jesus' name, Jesus is there. Isn't that a wonderful promise? And that's true now for us, so that you might be listening online. I hope there's some. And that no matter where you are, not only collectively, but you individually are a temple, it says, of the Holy Spirit. Because Christ gives his Holy Spirit, and now you individually, as a person and as a follower of Jesus, are made into the temple of God. Wherever you go, whoever you're with, you are the living temple, a temple that's on mission. It's amazing news. So that God is sending us, each one, collectively and individually. He's made us into these temples. A living temple, not of stones, but where the Spirit of God resides. So that if you're with your family, you're in your neighborhood, you're talking to someone on the phone, you're writing an email, everything that we do is as God's temple. And so we're called to be on mission. On mission to the Gentiles. That's what God's people do when they're under pressure and stress and threat. You're a temple. And as a temple, it is our call to stay focused on a single aim. It's Jesus Christ and being a conduit, a temple for others so that you're praying with others. You're inviting others to Jesus. That's our calling. There's many, many of, even this week, I've been hearing about those who are doing just that. I hope I don't embarrass anyone, but one sister here is Mother Val. Mother Val's in a rehab right now. And she's been meeting and talking with everyone in that home, telling them about Jesus. I don't know if you know Mother Val, but you know how outgoing she is about telling people about Jesus. And she she asked that we bring her a whole box of Bibles because she realized that a lot of the people staying with her didn't have Bibles and she wants to pass out those Bibles. We want to be like a temple like Mother Val, going around. Now, and remember, people are shaken. They're scared. They're afraid. And so you can come gently to them and say, what's going on? How are you feeling? Are you afraid? Can I tell you a little bit about some good news and why I'm feeling really encouraged right now? Now, maybe you can do it on the phone, or maybe you can do it by email, or maybe you could do it six feet away. 
Go to your neighbor and, and, and talk to them. Or we can be like Jonathan. Jonathan attends our church, and earlier this week he volunteered at Brigham and Women's Hospital to be on the, the COVID-19 floor in which he would be taking care of the patients who are coming into the Brigham. He, he attends this church, and he's on the front lines. We need to pray for Jonathan, that Jonathan would have the Spirit of God to not only medically care for his patients, but that he would have the Spirit of God to know what to say. And we want to be praying for all of our nurses and doctors because they're on the front lines caring for the sick. And caring, when you get sick, you're scared to death so that they would know what to say. We want to be like Jonathan. We want to be like Janice. Janice emailed me this morning. She says, I want to do something to serve the kingdom. That's a great expression. Do you want to serve the kingdom? Well, I, I was thinking we want to be, uh, if, if COVID-19, it has an r naught of 2.2. Now, maybe you're not an epidemiologist. I'm not either. But an r naught of 2.2 means that if a patient gets infected with COVID-19, on average, they will give COVID-19 to 2.2 people. That's why it's doubling and will concede, will, unless things, we should expect to see um, COVID-19 rapidly spread, unless some of the measures that we're taking now help reduce that. An r naught of 2.2, that's, that's a contagion that doubles. Do you know the gospel? What is its r naught? How much can it spread? So I'd like to challenge you to think of five people. That's more than double than COVID-19. I'd like you to think of five people this week that you can pray for, that you can communicate with, that you can listen to and ask questions to, and that you can ask Jesus to give you an opportunity to tell them about the strength that is in you. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to reach out to five people? If COVID-19 can do 2.2, we could easily do double that. So what do God's people do during times of pressure and stress and threat? We bear fruit. Secondly, we focus on our mission. We don't lose that focus. And then finally, we are to spread forgiveness and prayer. Look at verse 22. And Jesus answered them, Have faith in God. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says will come to pass, it will be done for him. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. Now, why does, why does Mark bring up this, these words from Jesus? It's because the true temple of God is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And now he's talking about what that prayer looks like. It's powerful. It impacts people. If you pray with faith, it will change things. It will alter the very course of the direction of people's lives if you're willing to pray and to not doubt. God's people, the temple, the temp are, we as brothers and sisters in Jesus are to pray with faith and to not doubt. It says, verse 23, Jesus says, do not doubt in your heart. I don't know about you, but I find myself constantly under threat of doubt. Doubt, which 
undermines my prayers. What are sources of doubt? Let me very quickly name some what, what they are. Sin, pride, injustice. Those are sources of doubt. So that if you cultivate sin and pride in you, it will lead to doubt, which will undermine the power of your prayers. A second form of doubt comes from the fact that prayer always has a lag time. It says in verse 23, your prayer will come to pass. So if you pray now, the prayer is not going to likely be immediately answered. In fact, we're, we're, we're promised that over and over again, that there's always a lag time between a powerful prayer and when it is actually answered. And during that lag time, as you continue to pray, doubt can creep in. And so we need to expect a lag time when you pray. And you need to continue to pray with faith. The doubt will come. You say no to the doubt. God is hearing, and God will do this in his time. A third source of doubt is this, as we see in this text, is demanding. It's demanding from God. Because what does he say? It's whatever you ask in prayer. So prayer is asking. It's requesting. It's never demanding. And some people think of prayer as a demand. And then they're going to be terribly disappointed because God doesn't respond to demands. He re responds to us asking. And this is the confidence that we have toward him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So it's asking, and it's asking in accordance with God, what God wants. And that leads to another form of doubt that is introduced into prayer. It's asking for selfish reasons. By the way, Jesus is not. When he, his prayers about when he curses the fig tree, or when he says when you cast the mountain into the sea, these are not frivolous, crazy sorts of prayers. They're actually referring to the temple. The fig tree clearly referring to the temple, but he's probably, when he says cast the mountain, he's probably thinking of and pointing right at Mount Zion where Jerusalem is. And his prayer is directly answered just a few years after in 70 AD when the, the entire temple complex was utterly destroyed. That mount was destroyed and Jesus' prayer was exactly answered. But we can ask for selfish reasons. You do not have, it says in James, because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive. Why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. And so when we pray, if we pray according to the will of God rather than our, our, our silly passions, then we can expect that God is going to answer in exactly the right time. That's the power of prayer. People have experienced the power of prayer. We as God's people must pray. So you need to be going into this week praying, praying to the Lord with expectation that he will answer. You say, well, I don't have a lot of faith. I have a lot of doubts. You can pray into those doubts. Lord, remove these doubts from me. Lord, my faith is tinier than even a mustard seed. Give me more faith. And that prayer will be answered. And as you work yourself into a time of prayer, you will see, as many saints have, God answer over and over and over again. There's a final source of doubt, and it's forgiveness, a lack of forgiveness. 
He says, and whenever you stand praying, forgive, Jesus says. If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. If you're not forgiving someone, then you can expect that that's going to undermine your prayer life. It's going to, it's going to weaken it so it, God doesn't answer the prayers. Because if you haven't forgiven, it means you're not forgiven. And if you're not forgiven, it means you don't have faith. And if you don't have faith, then your prayers aren't going to be answered. It's that simple. So brothers and sisters, have you forgiven everyone that you need to forgive? Is there anyone that comes to mind right now that you need to announce God's forgiveness? The temple was a place of forgiveness. Isn't that right? You, if you believe in Jesus, are the temple, so you must be a place of forgiveness. You've got to do it yourself first. If there's an image of a person in your mind who has harmed you, has done wrong to you, right now. Don't drink the poison. Forgive them in Jesus' name and you will be released from that bondage. And you will begin to see your prayers empowered for having done exactly as Jesus has commanded us. So what do God's people do under stress and pressure and threat? We bear fruit. So expect it. As you go into this week of pressure and stress, expect fruit. As you stay focused, number two, on the mission that God has given us as a temple's. And what is that mission all about? It's being people of prayer, being people of forgiveness. A lot's going on around us. This is not the time to get afraid. I expect, if God would be so good, that he would bear a harvest. I wonder if that's exactly what God is doing in this time. And so if we could just be the church and live into this calling, we can expect incredible fruit, not out of fear, but out of love, out of a sound mind, and out of a focus. This is our chance. Don't squander it. Don't build walls. An appropriate way is go after people and we will see something that God hasn't done in a long time. Pray with me. Oh Lord, we pray that you would enable us as feeble, doubting, faithless people to bear fruit and that you would increase in us Increase in in us and use us so that many come to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen.